The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. The parties are divided in terms of the effect that the stimulus is going to have. This inflation debate has really been heating up the effect of what the Biden administration is spending on political capital. Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. A group of centrists are the key senators to watch. Joe Biden, his number one focus in addition to the COVID health crisis is jobs. I don't think we have red roads and blue roads, and that's the way we're looking at this. Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I am the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Great show tonight, but let's head right to the White House to talk about Jobs Day. Headline in my Bloomberg terminal, U.S. job growth surges past estimates. Unemployment dips to 6.2%. U.S. employers added more jobs than forecast in February. How's that for some Friday optimism? And the unemployment rate declined, suggesting that the labor market is clawing its way forward again following several disappointing months. Uh, we head right to the White House where Bharat Ramamurti is joining us. He, of course, is the Deputy Director of the White House National Economic Council. Bharat, it's great to chat with you. All right, dive into the numbers. What are you seeing that is digging deeper than just the top line numbers? Sure. So obviously, uh, it was a very good jobs report. We we're always happy to see uh, more folks being employed. Uh, if you look under the hood, though, there's some concerning elements. Number one, it's important to remember what a big hole we're in. Even with this positive jobs number today, we are 9.5 million jobs short of where we were pre-pandemic. And even if we grow month after month at the rate of this last month, we, will, we won't get back to that employment number for more than two years. And so uh, that's why the president has been so focused on passing this American Rescue Plan through Congress. We need to speed up that process. We need to get these jobs back quicker uh, because we can't afford to wait more than two years to get back to where we were uh, January of last year. You know, Barat, I got to be honest here. I've been covering Jobs Day for nearly a decade, and it's not all the time you get someone so honest from uh, the administration really being forthright about these numbers. And you're, I mean, he's absolutely right, folks. I mean, it's going to take a couple years to get back to where we were pre-pandemic. You put it through the prism of the of the stimulus, something that we've been covering uh, very closely here uh, on this program in particular. But are you are you optimistic that this stimulus is nearing the finish line, especially as they're going to be working, it looks like, in the Senate all weekend to get it passed? Yeah, we're optimistic. Uh, obviously, the legislative process, this is how it works. People negotiate. There's some votes on amendments. Senators and congressmen uh, talk, talk about the details and hash out some compromises. That's what inevitably happens. But we are quite optimistic uh, that we are nearing the finish line here. And I just want to underscore what's at stake. Uh, you know, once this bill passes, if this bill passes, uh, we will cut child poverty in half this year. Uh, you know, hundreds, uh, more than 100 million uh, households will receive that $1,400 stimulus check. Uh, we'll be getting rental assistance to 7 million people who are behind on their rent and facing eviction. Uh, there's, there's even more than that. 
And so there's some really concrete things at stake in this package, and it's just imperative that we uh, get it across the finish line and start delivering relief to people. You know, I, I think it's fascinating to hear the spin on both sides of the aisle up on Capitol Hill. I know you're an economist and, and you don't want to step into the, the, the back and forth mudslinging, so to speak. But just to stick to the numbers a little bit, to dig deeper into this jobs data, the report adds to recent evidence, including data on manufacturing and retail sales, that the economy is gaining momentum. High-frequency data have also shown additional improvement, including an uptick in restaurant bookings. The yield on the 10-year Treasury note advanced to the highest in more than a year following the report. But many economists expect to see job prospects and economic growth improve in the coming months as vaccinations pick up and virus concerns ease further. I guess, Bharat, I, I want to ask in particular, how do you make sure that the comeback the economic comeback over the next two years is equal, especially for, unfortunately, minority groups that have been just pummeled as a result of the economic calamity of the pandemic. Yeah, I'm really glad you, you asked about this because it's a big focus uh, of the president and the vice president. Uh, it, it's one thing for the top line numbers to recover. It's another thing if, if you look under the hood, there are certain big groups that are getting left behind. And you look at the data uh, you know, one thing that you notice, the unemployment rate overall went down, but the unemployment rate, uh, uh, the black unemployment rate went up, uh, you know, nearly a percentage point. Uh, you look at the data, uh, uh, more than two million women have dropped out of the labor force in the last year. Two million, uh, and wow. That's, and that's overwhelmingly uh, black and Hispanic women. Uh, we've lost uh, a million, one million local uh, educator jobs, so teachers, wow. uh, in, since last year. And so, uh, you know, building back better, which is what the president has talked about, it involves making sure that those groups uh, uh, get 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 the recovery too, not just uh, not just you know up, upper upper income Americans. And so, uh, a lot of the president's plan is dedicated to making sure that those groups, number one, get relief in the short term, but number two, are are going to be uh, beneficiaries of a growing economy. And this can be just one example of that. You know, the, the president's plan includes. A significant amount of money for state and local governments, uh, many of whom have been facing big uh, revenue losses because of COVID. Uh, you know, uh, black uh, and Hispanic workers are disproportionately likely to work at the state and local uh, government level. And, and the layoffs that we're seeing among state and local government workers are, are hitting those groups hardest. So in order to uh, get a comeback at the state and local level, that's going to help uh, a lot of the black and Hispanic workers uh, that we've been talking about. So look, there there is a uh, it's always good to see uh, top-line level improvements. We're glad to see the job number taking up. But uh, to have an equitable recovery uh, is a critical priority of ours, and that's why you need the kind of stimulus package that the, that the president's been pushing for. Well, and even digging deeper to your point, and Bharat uh, Ramamurthy is with us. He is the deputy director of the White House National Economic Council uh, to, to crunch the numbers here. The U6 unemployment rate, which is considered a more accurate measure of joblessness by, by some economists, it held at 11.1%. Unlike the headline unemployment rate, the U6 rate includes those who are employed part-time for economic reasons and those who have stopped looking for a job uh, because they are discouraged. Some econo economic analysis appointed to the U6 today. But even beyond this, I mean, you alluded to this, uh, Bafat, but uh, the unemployment rate for black Americans rose in February while falling for white, Asian, and Hispanic Americans. And, and it just speaks to your point about making sure that the comeback is equal for all groups of Americans. But that's a really tough—I mean, how do, you, how do you target that 
for to to make sure that that especially not just not just part time jobs but good paying jobs come back for all groups of Americans. Yeah. So you know, look, there there are uh, certain sectors of the economy where we know uh, uh, the recovery might take a little bit longer, or that, that those companies have been hardest hit. Right? Restaurants and bars is a is a classic example. Uh, uh, you look at that, uh, that that drives a lot of the job losses that we've seen uh, in the last year. Uh, you know, the, Amer- the American Rescue Plan that the president is pushing for uh, includes $25 billion specifically for restaurants and bars and grants, right, to get people to make sure that the doors stay open, to get people back to work, and so that we can get through this crisis and come out the other side uh, in, in strong shape. Um, you know, we are trying to make sure that uh, we are creating a bridge to the other side of the pandemic, but at the same time, putting in the uh, uh, support so that uh, companies and people can come out the other side stronger. There's a, a lot of small business money uh, in this bill that, in, that is uh, intended to provide working capital for small businesses so that, you know, uh, come the summer, uh, into the fall, they can make capital investments, they can grow, uh, they can expand. And that's what we want to see. We want to see a thriving small business sector that's uh, employing people uh, in their communities. All right, I got I got to just add this in here for those who don't know this. Bharat Ramamurthy, he actually used to work for another guest of this program that we had on earlier this week, Senator Elizabeth Warren. But that's not actually the name drop that I want to do for you, Bharat. I just learned this. It's right in front of my face. I never do this about you, sir. You were an intern in the legal department of the Boston Red Sox. I'm a Phillies fan. Who would have thought that you're you know, that that must have been a fun internship. Uh, it was a great year. It was 2007. We the Red Sox won the World Series. And wow, that's a great year. All been downhill since then. All right, but kidding is, <laughs> yeah, well, not for your career, but maybe for the Red Sox. But uh, kidding aside, get this interview back on track, Kevin. It's Friday. Come on, buddy. Uh, but you, 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 I put this question to every policymaker that that I've had on this week, and I, and I want to put it to you. And it's really no laughing matter. You talk about building a bridge, and and everyone wants to do that. Uh, that everyone has different ideas for, for how to do that. But if we're building an economic bridge, we have to make sure that where that bridge leads, that it's a, it's an economy where there's an, an industries that, quite frankly, those industries might not come back after the pandemic. So how do we make sure that for those Americans who have jobs uh, in, before the pandemic and in industries that aren't going to come back, that there are opportunities for them and equal opportunities for them in the new post-pandemic economy? Right. So the president has made clear that this is a two-step process. Step one is this bill that he's pushing uh, through Congress right now, which is about providing immediate relief, about providing support for distributing vaccines, getting our schools open, these kinds of immediate problems uh, that we we need to address. Uh, Step two, which he's talked about and that he campaigned on, uh, is his Build Back Better agenda, right? Uh, uh, Transformative, big investments in uh, infrastructure, American manufacturing, uh, the care economy, uh, in housing, uh, the kinds of ne- uh, investments that we've neglected for far too long, and the kinds of investments that create good, high-paying jobs and position the U.S. economy for long-term success, right? Broadband, for example, right? Connecting 20 or 30 million people to high-speed broadband internet, that creates good jobs in the short term. It also creates a more productive economy in the future as more people can connect to the internet, start a business from home, connect to the global economy, right? And, and, and these kinds of uh, transformative investments are, are stage two of the president's agenda. We obviously want to get this rescue bill through, uh, and then we can start talking about the next step, which is uh, making these deep investments 
uh, in the American economy so we can position ourselves to be uh, the, the world's leading economy for, for decades to come. All right, we're going to have to leave it there. Bharat Varamamurti, former intern for the Boston Red Sox and, of course, the deputy director of the White House National Economic Council. Hey, thanks so much for making time for me on a Friday. I really appreciate it uh, on that jobs day. Really important. Coming up, we check in with the all-star policy panel. Bloomberg Politics contributors were Rick Davis and Jeannie Sean Zeno join me. And another conversation with Congressman Brian Stile. You don't want to miss that. You don't want to miss that. He's a Republican from Wisconsin. We're carefully follow, following multiple stories uh, on uh, up on Capitol Hill, including on the stimulus, uh, because President Biden made public appeals earlier today for passage of that pandemic relief bill. He met with potential recipients of stimulus checks and highlighted continuing damage in the labor market. The Senate, meantime, was stalled in considering amendments to the bill. Negotiations, mind you among senators continued on the details of supplemental jobless benefits. The lawmakers still expect the legislation to pass in the chamber sometime over the weekend. I said it once and I'll say it again. Please check us out on uh, the Bloomberg Business app, uh, uh, iHeartRadio, as well as on Spotify, iTunes, wherever you listen uh, to your podcast, to your radio shows, and you can catch up on all of the interviews and stellar work that our entire team has put together, led, of course, by our EP Christine Barada. Much more policy and politics coming up next. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. This is Bloomberg. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I am the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio, accompanied by the Bloomberg Politics team, Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis. On a Friday. I mean, I want to stay with this conversation about what's happening up in the Senate. We just got a White House dispatch from the deputy director of the National Economic Council at the White House, Bharat Ramamurti, um, Jeannie. But meanwhile, up on Capitol Hill, it, they're going to be working all night. Talk about a lot of drama. But still, everyone's expecting that this ultimately gets passed. They are. And I think it's worth noting both in your interview and we've heard from other people in the White House that despite the fact we all expect this gets passed by the narrowest of margins, 51, the White House seems concerned that this jobs report may give the GOP maybe some moderates fodder for pushing back on the size of the bill. Um, so they they seem to be, you know, wanting to underplay or downplay the numbers, you know, the sort of the positive news that you read at the top there. And so, you know, I think there is some concern there that while this looks to be done, there is still chance, a little wiggle room there maybe for Republicans to make hay out of this and they're pushing back against it. Yeah, it's a game of political poker. Never in my years of covering jobs day have I ever seen an administration try to say it's a bad jobs number just so that they can <laughs> even when it's a good jobs number. And to your point, my colleague David Weston on Balance of Power spoke with Heather Boucher, who's a member of the President's Council of Economic Advisors. I mean, this this quote really just is it's brilliant. I mean, it just sums up the whole entire kit and caboodle. Here's the sound on this from Heather Boucher. First of all, it's great that people got jobs in February. That's that's important. We should celebrate it. But I got to tell you, you know, we have um, the, the jobs deficit that we're in. It's about 9.5 million jobs over the past year. That is a bigger deficit than we saw in the deepest, darkest days of the Great Recession. So while this was, you know, a good report in some ways, it is we are certainly not out of the woods yet. And there remain significant challenges facing the U.S. economy and particularly facing the U.S. labor market. 
Rick Davis, they want the whole kit and caboodle up on Capitol Hill to try to get to that stimulus. $1.9 trillion <laughs> and not one penny less. Uh, yeah, they, uh, they're fighting it hard. They're all out. The, the, the president's uh, economic co- uh, council has been working overtime today to exercise that same message. And look, I mean, realistically, anybody who's taken a victory lap on the economy is premature. So, yes, good jobs report. Still nine and a half million people unemployed, higher in minority communities and distressed areas. Uh, a lot of work to get people back uh, to where they were before COVID. Uh, and we'll see what comes out of the Senate. There's a lot of, as you say, poker going on, a lot of, a lot of trading in projects right now on Capitol Hill in the United States Senate. So um, there will be a big stimulus package, as you say, 51 votes say so. And, uh, and we'll see what, uh, what changes in the bill happen, you know, when the dust settles. Rick, you did not use the phrase of the hour, kit and caboodle, in, t- <laughs> in terms of describing this. Uh, um, I, I promised my children I would never use that phrase. I'm an old soul, Rick. Go you ahead, really Jimmy. <laughs> I'm not going to say it. That sounds but... like a bunch of malarkey to me. <laughs> it's definitely Friday here. Um, no, it, and it's fascinating. You're, we're, you know, as Rick is talking about $1.9 trillion, and to go back to, to your discussion, Kevin, the... We not only heard about, you know, sort of concern that this gets through, but what did he say? This is the first in a two-step process what, of what he described, and we heard this on the campaign trail to his point, of this Build Back Better agenda with transformative investments in infrastructure, housing, broadband. And I kept, I keep asking myself, where does this money come from and is there the political will? Because if this $1.9 trillion isn't enough, are we going to, you know, be? Are they going to be have the political will, moderate Democrats even, to jump on to another bill right after this? I have real questions about that. So this morning, after uh, uh, I watched Jared Birdstein of the White House speak to our our colleague Jonathan Farrow, I, I picked up the phone because it, it, what she just said made me think of this, and I called uh, the former press secretary to Bernie, Bernie Sanders uh, on his presidential campaign, and I said. You know what's going on, Brianna? Like, what, what, what's the, what's the lay of the land amongst the Democratic Socialist crowd? And they're to say that they're frustrated is an understatement at this minimum wage issue, and they feel that the White House and that Senate Democrats and Speaker Pelosi did not fight for them. That they, I mean, well, I guess Speaker Pelosi did, but especially in the Senate, that they didn't fight for them uh, on the minimum wage issue. Now, uh, Jared Bernstein told Farrow that. This was something that Bernstein has been working on for years, that President Biden remains committed to. But that message hasn't resonated based upon the conversations and the interviews that I was gathering throughout the day amongst those grassroots progressives. Take a listen to the sounds on this particular issue from Senator Bernie Sanders, who spoke earlier today and called it absurd that a Senate parliamentarian who's unelected says that it can't be done to include the minimum wage in this. Frankly, it is disgraceful that Congress has not passed an increase in the minimum wage since 2007. It is an absurd process that we allow an unelected staffer, somebody who works for the Senate, not elected by anybody, to make a decision as to whether 30 million Americans get a pay raise or not. The last time, actually, Rick, do you know when the last time was that Congress fired the Senate parliamentarian? Fired the Senate parliamentarian? No, I thought you were going to say uh, 2009 was when the last time they approved a minimum wage bill. But uh, 
Republicans uh, last time did they, it in they the 90s. In the 90s. Well, you know, look, parliamentarians fight. uphold the rules. And what, what Bernie is saying is let's yeah. not play by the rules. Let's right, well, hold on. Let's rules. hold it right there because we're going to talk about this coming up next. Uh, panel's going to stay, but with much more freaking genie. I'm Kevin Cerilli. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. My name is Kevin Cerulli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg TV and radio, and I'm accompanied by Bloomberg politics contributor, Rick Davis and Jeannie Sean Dave, Jeannie Sean Zeno. Sorry that about that, Jeannie. Uh, it's it's Friday, uh, but we are accompanied by Congressman Brian Stile. He is a Republican from Wisconsin. Congressman, it's great to have you on a Friday. Earlier, we checked in with the White House on the jobs data number. I take it you have a different interpretation. They were saying that the jobs data means we need more stimulus. Do you agree with that? I think what we're seeing is one of the lowest labor participation rates since the Carter administration, hanging out around 61%. What that's telling me is that lots of moms and dads out there aren't able to get back into the workforce because far too many of our schools are not allowing students to attend in person five days a week. I think the number one thing we could do for the labor for the labor market right now is get children back in school safely, free up those moms and dads return to the return to the workforce. Okay, Congressman. So in, in terms of where this fight goes, though, I mean, it, it's looking increasingly likely that this will pass uh, the Senate and, and President Biden will will sign it, but. The next fight is infrastructure. How much money are you, are you willing to spend and, and is the Republican Party willing to spend on an infrastructure plan, or is the appetite simply not there? What we need to do is have an adult conversation on the other side of the ledger. And what I mean by that is I think there's broad bipartisan understanding that there's a need to invest in infrastructure in the United States. What we're refusing to do is have a conversation about how to pay for it. There's really five levers to pay for infrastructure. You can raise taxes generally. You can have a user fee. You can cut spending elsewhere. You can have private sector investment in the infrastructure, or you can do some sort of a combination of the above. What we saw coming right out of the gates on day one, Joe Biden kills the Keystone Pipeline. He's killing billions of dollars of private sector infrastructure investment. We need to have that conversation about how we're going to pay for it. And when you have a $1.9 trillion spending bill getting passed in the early morning of the hours in the House, looking like it's going to fly through the Senate as well, what it's really doing is crowding out our ability to make the investments that we need in infrastructure and job-creating movements rather than what we're watching the Biden administration do is spend in debt for this bill, spend in debt going forward. And at some point with $30 $30 trillion in national debt soon to hit the books. That's crowding out our ability to invest in infrastructure later on. 
Congressman Rick Davis here. Uh, if we can go back to the Keystone issue, because I think this is something that obviously has had a big negative impact on job prospects in your region. And here the administration claims they're trying to do everything they can to map out higher job employment. But they seem to be picking winners and losers in that fight. In other words, lots of money in the stimulus bill for renewable energy, which is great. We ought to have more of that in our cycle. But like, why are we taking jobs off the table that are already basically paid for? In a period of time where we need people to get to work, it was really disheartening to see on day one Joe Biden, with the strike of a pen, kill the Keystone Pipeline. As, I, as noted, that's private sector investment in infrastructure is exactly what we need, not only from a national security standpoint of having a supply of North America oil and gas. It's also jobs right here in North America, I, where I have the opportunity to be a voice for southeast Wisconsin. We make things. We make things that go to actually create the pipelines. It's also men and women from the state of Wisconsin who are going out to Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota, to actually build the pipeline in good, family-supporting, private-sector jobs. And exactly what you said, Joe Biden is picking winners and losers by killing the Keystone Pipeline on day one. It was incredibly disappointing when he did that. Congressman, this is Jeannie Shanzano, and I know uh, we have an anniversary coming up this weekend of Bloody Sunday, and the other day the House passed the For the People Act, and you've spoken about your views on that, um, saying, amongst other things, that it would legalize uh, some of the mistakes that your state made in the election. Can you talk a little bit about what you would like to see to restore faith in the electoral process if it's not this bill? Well, this, this bill, I call it for the politicians. I mean, it, it takes government money and adds it into our election system. I think we're best served when we are running elections at the state and local level, not nationalizing it like this bill. What I did, uh, I wrote an op-ed along with some of my uh, colleagues from the state of Wisconsin about what Wisconsin should do to strengthen our elections, how we can end midnight ballot dumps, about how we can clean up the voter rolls. And so I think what we need to do is at a state and local level, really dig in and figure out how we enhance voter integrity, how we remove loopholes to voter ID. What the Democrats put forward in H.R. 1, what I call For the Politicians Act, is it actually guts voter ID laws across the country. It says anyone who comes to the polls in a state with a voter ID law can simply sign an affidavit saying who they claim to be. It'd be as if you and I went to the airport to catch a flight from Milwaukee out to Washington, D.C. You forgot your voter. You, you forgot your ID. And you just said, well, let me just sign a sheet of paper that says I am who I am. That wouldn't be allowed to fly in an airplane. It shouldn't be allowed in the process of voting. And so I think we should be working to enhance the integrity of our election, improve people's confidence in our election system, rather than heading in the other direction, which I think H.R. 1 does. Congressman, we got 90 seconds left, but I, I do want to ask you about this. You are a member of the House Financial Services Committee, uh, and uh, there's another hearing over the next couple of weeks on GameStop. Uh, after your, the, the previous hearing on GameStop, uh, do you think that there needs to be any policy changes or uh, with regards to the trading freeze that occurred just the other month? I think there's a handful of policy things that we should be doing going forward. Uh, Representative Anthony Gonzalez from Ohio and I are leading a letter of this of pushing forward on the shift from T plus two to T plus one, the quicker that we can actually have these trades finalized, that would actually reduce the capital requirements of companies like Robinhood so that they wouldn't have gotten into this collateral call 
in the first place. I think we can look for policy solutions to catch up to what technology is allowing us to do. I think that's one of the big things that we need to look at is remove some of this regulatory arbitrage that companies are using. And we can do that by getting our regulations catching up to what the technology is allowing us to do. The sooner we allow these trades to clear, the better off we're going to be. Congressman Brian Stile, Republican from Wisconsin, thank you, sir, for uh, spending your Friday afternoon with us. Coming up, much more policy and politics. This is Bloomberg. All right, we're going to do something a little bit different right now. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. It's Friday. It's been a week, huh? Bloomberg Politics contributors, the all-star policy team with me, Jeannie Shanzano, Rick Davis. I want to talk about the pandemic, but I don't want to talk about stimulus because they're going to be fighting about it all weekend, and the reporting hasn't changed uh, that it's ultimately likely going to get passed um, and we'll cover it on Monday, I promise. But there's been, a, a, a candidly, and Rick, you mentioned this to me yesterday. It got me thinking, and I agree with you, that what's happening in the cities and in the states is where all the action is right now on uh, on the vaccination front, on the front for reopening. Just in the last hour, we got this headline. One of our bosses, Charlie Vollmer, he puts it in the group chat. He's a big baseball fan. California ballparks and stadiums can begin reopening April 1st, opening day. Of course, they've got some limitations. You can't go get popcorn or a hot dog, uh, but the concessions will be closed. But a couple hundred, a couple of people will be allowed in. I, I mentioned this earlier. Broadway is starting to reopen in April as well. I mean, there's a lot of optimism, Jeannie. It, 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 this headline on the Bloomberg Terminal, U.S. vaccinated half of its senior citizens. The, the next half will be harder, but more than half of Americans 65 years old and over have gotten a COVID-19 vaccination. That's pretty good, Jeannie. It is. And of course, we've seen in the last few days, Texas and Mississippi lift their mask mandates and reopen to 100 percent. And of course, you, you mentioned the news about California just in the last hour. And of course, in response to some of this, we heard the president, we've heard Anthony Fauci, but the president in particular say this was uh, uh, what the uh, Neanderthal thinking, I think, was the quote, which which got a lot of discussion. But I do see this as sort of a, a fight that we've seen throughout the pandemic between what's happening at the federal level and all of the action going on at the state and local level. And you couple that with the fact that the two governors of the two, two of the most populous Democratic states in California and New York under fire for their handling of the pandemic and the Florida governor doing rather well. So we've seen something of a switch in that regard as well. I, we've come a long way, folks. Remember last March and oh, 15 days, it'll all be over. Nope. It's been a lot longer than that. I, Rick, I want to talk about Cuomo uh, because uh, on the Bloomberg Terminal, we've got this report out. New York lawmakers approve bill to strip Cuomo's pandemic era powers. New York lawmakers earlier today took the first step toward repealing pandemic era emergency powers afforded to scandal plagued governor Andrew Cuomo. The Senate passed the state Senate passed a bill 43 to 20 to revoke temporary powers given to Cuomo in March that allowed him to supersede the legislator as well as local laws to issue hundreds of sweeping emergency directives on everything from closing businesses and schools to mandating the use of masks. Wow. I mean, Governor Cuomo's power is really getting smaller. Well, it, it, 
it's getting smaller back to where it was before the coronavirus, right? I mean, what, what we have to understand is that a lot of extraneous measures in government were taken when fear gripped the country over the fact that we were emerging into a pandemic. And so state by state, in almost all 50 states, governors were granted emergency powers so there would be a command and control of the state's response to COVID. Now, you can argue whether that worked out well or not, and and each state has its own uh, uh, good stories and bad stories. But, But what you see consistent with exactly what you and Jeannie were just talking about, now states are starting to look at it and saying, look, this is no longer an emergency situation. We're successfully inoculating millions of people. You know, we have to get back to school in order to ensure that our children are educated and the parents can go back to work. And so you see the reopening coming. And uh, and so we'll see where it goes. I, I'm still, I guess, why would you go to a baseball game if not to have a hot dog? Right. But, um, That's what I said. Outside of that, I and think it's Friday. The, I'm not the reopening is welcome. Well, I broke that. and they, they were feeding us in the Bloomberg pantry this morning. I take a bite into my turkey and egg and cheese on a biscuit, and I thought, it's Lent, Kevin, but oh well. Um, but I think the politics of this, Rick Davis, and that's where, I, let's put on your political cap, do you think that there are governors, like Governor Abbott, that see the political advantage in being first to reopen? Well, I think Abbott, Governor Abbott is a particularly interesting situation because uh, he needed to change the topic, right? I mean, mm. he had a devastating response to... Uh, the cold snap, whether uh, people out of power couldn't get water. I mean, really a complete and utter failure of leadership. So he was looking for a page turner and and probably saw the opportunity to get ahead of a reopening in a state that has never, you know, anecdotally, I've heard, uh, adhered very strictly to a mask mandate to begin with. So he was he was, I think, taking advantage of the cycle. But you'll see as we go along and the examples you use are good ones. Uh, more and more governors are going to start, you know, opening up their businesses. Uh, we've talked a lot about job loss, most of it in the service sector. Uh, it can bounce back if, if restaurants and stores are allowed to reopen. Uh, uh, and so when you see that starting to happen, I see it being contagious, right? Not like a virus, but like something positive that could be happening around the states. I couldn't agree with you more, and I think people are ready for that. And and here in Washington D.C., where I've been, uh, just anecdotally, it's they have not lifted really any restrictions. It's and I I don't know when they are going to do that. And the the word on the street, for lack of a better reporting tone, is that it has a lot to do with January sixth, uh, and and how long the the National Guard is is going to continue to stay here, uh, Jeannie. Uh, you know, I, I, I want to get your thoughts. I mean, in terms of the Democrats that you speak with, do they sense a risk in not getting on board with reopening? Because I know a lot of Democrats that I interview are getting sick of these restrictions as well. I think everybody is sick of them, but I do think there is a huge concern out there. And we heard this reflected particularly by Anthony Fauci and, and other people in the administration who are coming at, to it from the health policy perspective, that we still face challenges here. Just because you've been vaccinated, for instance, which is a great thing, doesn't mean you may not be susceptible to these variants that are out there. So I think Democrats in particular want to take a little bit more of a cautious 
cautious approach in terms of this reopening. And we're getting sort of a typical back and forth between Democrats and Republicans on where these decisions should be made at the state and local level or at the federal level. And of course, again, we're also getting a lot of criticism of Democratic governors. Let's not forget that just yesterday, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal and others reporting that Governor Cuomo and his administration, they doctored numbers and the number Uh. of people dead in these nursing homes here. I'm in New York. That's 15,000 people. Uh. You know, that is a huge, huge crisis. And I, we don't know yet. It's his legacy. We don't know yet what's going to happen. He says he won't resign. But I think we're going to hear more of that as we move forward, hopefully towards, you know, seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. I know I shouldn't say this, but there's a lot of CNN questions there, too, that they're going to have to answer. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think objectively that people in the media can can say that. Uh, All right. Let's end on an upbeat note. But just let me plug uh, Monday's show. We've got Senator Joni Ernst, a Republican from uh, uh, Iowa. And then uh, we're going to be talking about a wide ranging host of of different policy issues on the ethanol front, on the energy front. Uh, Senator Shelley Moore Capito is going to join me on Tuesday. So we've got some some great lawmakers for the first half of next week. What's your word of the week, Rick Davis? Well, I think we can all safely assume that the QAnon conspiracy theory uh, that was supposed to put Trump back in office on March 4th has been completely and utterly debunked. I'm we can glad take the razor wire down. Let's lose the fences. Let's go back to normal in Washington. But you know, I, I'm going to, okay, I was thinking about this. And I, again, it's Friday, so I'm going to, Kev, you're still on air, buddy. So just because you're talking to your, to Rick and Jeannie. But I, I take it down, provided that you can assure every staffer and Capitol Hill worker in the cafeterias and everyone who works in that ecosystem is safe. And I don't know. I mean, you know this, Rick. There are a lot of office buildings on that campus. You following me? Yeah. Uh, the primary job of the Capitol Police is to ensure the security yeah. of the members and the and the staff who support them. And I think there is a new focus on their ability to do that. But for heaven's sakes, we cannot live where conspiracy theories dictate our actions. Yeah. All right. It's, uh, uh, March is Women's History Month, and Bloomberg Radio is looking back at some of those who played a vital role in American history. Here with today's installment is Bloomberg's Renita Young. On this day in women's history in 1931, Geraldine Cobb is born. She's the first woman to pass qualifying exams for astronaut training. She got hooked on aviation at 12 years old after her first flight on a bi-wing airplane. Cobb received her commercial pilot's license on her 18th birthday, but she had difficulty finding work as a pilot. So she took on less desirable jobs like crop dusting. But she eventually became a pilot and several designations later in 1959 Cobb was the first woman to undergo the grueling Mercury astronaut selection tests, which she passed with flying colors. But she was denied entrance into the program because she had no military jet experience. Cobb spent the next three decades as a missionary pilot in the Amazon, which won her nomination for a Nobel Peace Prize. That's Today in Women's History. I'm Renita Young, Bloomberg Radio. Have a great weekend, everybody. I'm Kevin Cirilli. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. 
Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.